Oh, man. I hear this new teacher threw some kid out a window in Chicago. Oh, man. Ran him over with his car. No, no, that's not what happened. The guy got fired because he went berserk in class. He picked up a chair and threw... Oh. It's my fifth class today. I'm a little out of shape. Thank God you're seniors. You'll have mercy on me, I hope. Welcome back. To the percolated media, Stephen King retrospective. Welcome back. Continuing their journey through the film adapted works of author Stephen King, the boys will spend the next few weeks looking at the three movies in the Sometimes They Come Back franchise. Don't let them upset you, Mr. Norman. They're idiots. Will Adam have a better time with these movies than he did with the Trucks adaptations? Is this what happens to tough guys like you, huh? Will Matt make it through without letting his grumpy Goudreau persona come out? Why don't you throw something at me while I'm looking, huh? Throw it to my face! And will Garrett find a gem in the adaptations of this, his favorite night shift story? Woo! Shooting Jimbo. The answers to all these questions and more, coming up, courtesy of percolated media. Why don't we just get this over with? Uh... Sometimes they come back. Again! Released September 3rd, 1996, and this is directed by Adam Grossman. So Dino comes out with Sometimes They Come Back on TV, on CBS nonetheless. Somehow, someway, another production company gets a hold of the rights, and here we go, a couple ways to make money. Matt Goudreau. You weren't too big on the sentimentality last week. You expressed that you had no idea they even had sequels before we started outlining this year and podcast we were going to do. What the hell were you expecting when we popped in? Sometimes they come back again. I was expecting 98 minutes of pain and suffering and just me gestating in my own despair. Two things I don't like. Stephen King sequels and Stephen King direct-to-video slash TV productions. If this was a cookbook, I would have burned my house to the ground with that recipe. But because of your, what I call, generous thoroughness is how I'll phrase that when it comes to doing these, I was willing to give this the benefit of the doubt. Because if you were advocating for it that much, surely there must be some particular reason outside of checking the boxes. I'm not going to answer whether or not that was true. Bunch, you have been... The least advocate of all of us of doing these King movies, but you kind of liked last week's movie. Going into this one, what were you expecting? I did. I enjoyed last week's movie enough. I think I'm going to wait till we finish these Night Shift collection, but I do want to read the stories now, which is, hey, that's a positive. This one, though, I, I can't think of direct to VHS movies, whatever, that are going to be positive. So when I learned that there was two more, thanks to you, much like Matt, I'm like, do we re- – God Damn it, can, ah, how are we going to get through this? And I expected an hour and a half of just schlocky horridness that I was going to have to trudge through to eventually get to whatever was coming next. So my expectations, as much as I enjoy the story and enjoy the thought process behind Sometimes They Come Back, I did had zero expectations for how and why they would do any type of straight-to-video sequels. Well, at the very least... We can all say that there were some recognizable names in this. 
Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That's where I got surprised. When I watched the trailer for this, I was surprised of who they were able to get for something like this. They got Michael Gross. Me and Adam pretty much know him as the dad from Family Ties, although people nowadays probably know him from Tremors and the majority of those sequels. <laughs> we have Alexis Arquette, who we're going we're gonna to say you he, know what? For, I, we're going to say he was I a he because he, he was a he when he did this movie. For anybody, as we get through this discussion, I'm going to refer to Alexis Arquette because uh, that's the name that I know them by, as he, because they were a he during the course of this movie. This is not an attempt to insult, dead name, anything else in that realm. That's just my connection to Alexis, that they were a he during the filming of this movie. So right. that is in no way going to be any type of pejorative whatsoever. I want to put that out there. Thank you for doing that. At this point, he was kind of known. He, he had done Pulp Fiction around this time and mm -hmm. he had been roaming around and definitely a recognizable name especially the last name it's kind of known for this type of stuff mm -hmm. well especially and, this came, ironically this came out the same year as scream when their brother was yeah that was a couple months after this actually when that movie came out and future oscar winner previous star of beverly hills 90210 <laughs> <laughs> and a movie I rewatched this week. She was in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie, too. Hillary Swank is here to grace us with her presence. Now, Goudreau, when you heard Hillary Swank was in this, were you kind of excited about that? No, because I know the next Karate Kid exists. <laughs> so it, it's not like, you know, when she when she's the go to person for direct to video sequels, no matter how legitimate her pedigree is. And it, and it certainly is. She's got as many Oscars as there are sequels to Sometimes They Come Back. So take take that for having much more of a career trajectory than I ever will. But I'm not going to sit here and tell you that this cast excited me. This could have been the cast of Interview with the Vampire, where it was just everyone at their apex, and I still would not have given a shit. I don't know. Some of the scenes of this movie, I'm sure you would probably like that. Um... <laughs> All right, so maybe if the names don't excite you, well, let's talk about the plot here. We were introduced to this movie through the Lionsgate emblem, so we're seeing Lionsgate here. And this was a time when Lionsgate was really catching on, before Saw, before any of that. And then we're open up, we open up and we're seeing a woman's face reflected in a stormy window as she's slicing her hand, and she climbs a stepladder, reaches for plastic strips on a shelf, and then falls to her death. And the questions start right away. Was she pushed, given what, where this movie ends up going? This is an interesting way to start things off, but I don't know. The lack of explanation of what the hell's going on, it did less to intrigue me and more to kind of frustrate me at the very beginning here. What about you guys? I felt like Guy Pierce and Memento watching this, and what I mean by that is I was, I was looking at my body because I felt like I had seen this shit before because it's the same opening as Pet Cemetery 2. <laughs> like, it really is. like I talk about this all the time on these these lesser King movies where it feels like blueprints or trial runs for stuff he would do later on. This one, he's even borrowing from sequels of, of his well-known work. I mean, hell, this movie has the literal lawnmower man at one yes. point. So, <laughs> yes, it so at this point, nothing surprises me as far as him borrowing from himself. But it's not setting me off on a good note because I know there there's going to be more than to this story than she got clumsy and fell out of the side of a building. I've seen horror movies. I've seen this type of movie. And hell, we saw this in Child's Play. That was the big thing. Did she fall out the window? Yeah. And also, just... 
to point it out, King had nothing to do with this movie. So <laughs> with the exception of the source material, this is not a King trope. This is something that a filmmaker took and ran with. Although there's something in this movie that really is directly from that story, but we'll get to that. Adam, were you intrigued at this point? Let me see. I'm going to take a look at my notes. Uh, first note, first thought, why? Second note, slice fall dead. What the fuck just happened? <laughs> <laughs> I love you got to take pictures of your notes one day and just put those on. I'm just I'm I'm just confused right off the bat. And I think this is done as a misdirection because I think it's supposed to be set up that she's murdered by a pair of people in this movie that we are supposed to think might be up to something the entire time. So when that happens, I'm realizing there's a mystery element that's not fleshed out, but also not completely abandoned. So I don't hate that it's here. I'm just really confused right off the bat. All right. So. The blood is running outside as a fire develops and something seems to be resurrected. We're then seeing a shrink session with Stephen Keaton, a.k.a. Michael Gross, <laughs> a.k.a. John Porter, as he is talking to a guy about why he is afraid of the dark. But his session is interrupted by Hillary Swank, who tells him that her grandma died. And man, do we realize that Swank was three years away from winning an Oscar here? <laughs> <laughs> When I see her stuff like 90210 and this, I'm like, God damn, this woman won a fucking Oscar. I'm laughing off the bat because Michael Gross, I think the only reason he's in here is because he played a therapist on Family Ties and he's basically playing that exact same character in this. And I, I keep thinking that that profession and his job and what he's doing, it matters somewhere in this movie. Nope. Uh-uh. Not Never really does. whatsoever. <laughs> doesn't no. and it bookends his arc but it does so in a way that doesn't matter whatsoever when swank first shows up i will say though i'm impressed that they got somebody in this film that can act yeah i want to have you spoil this right now do you think she does here i think she does throughout you think she does well in this movie okay yep I, I I can see why she much like jennifer aniston you know you start in some schlocky shit and then hope that you get a career out of it. I can see here why producers and casting agents would say, you know what? We got some stuff that she can do. Hmm. Goudreau, what about you, sir? I'm taking my own shrink notes because I wrote down that Adam is delusional. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I know Hillary Swank can act because I've seen her in other stuff, but if this was my first exposure to her, which thankfully it's not, I would think she was doing dinner theater to be perfectly honest. And for the record also, John Porter, or Michael Gross, he is to psychologists what David Harbour is to dirty cops. Because that's basically all, there was a period where that was all he played. Because on Spin City, he played Michael J. Fox's therapist. Uh That's all he was for a long time. It's like, who do you need to play a therapist? Get Michael Gross. I will say the family dynamic of this one, it's about on par with the first one. I don't think it's that much of a drop off. But I would be lying to you if I said this was something I would watch and I'd be like, all right, I'm making boys don't cry. Get me Hillary Swank for this role because I don't fucking see it. To go back to Michael Gross, there is very little, as is evident by my intro to this podcast. I didn't really talk about the production of this because there's really no talk about the production. But I did find an interview with Michael Gross in Fangoria magazine from back in 96. And he does talk about this movie. And he says he wanted a new acting challenge. He liked doing different things in his career at that time. Stephen Keaton at this point was seven years before. He had done a couple Tremors movies. He was like, maybe I could play a father in a horror film. I mean, this was the kind of role he was kind of looking for around this time. I don't know if he read the complete script or maybe the first 10 pages, but (laughs) here we are. (laughs) 
So Shelly, or Michelle, is blabbing away to two girls who clean her grandma's house for a week as John is visited by someone who, quote, knows him and says that he needs to talk to him about his mother who just died. Talk about a, talk about a Stephen King trope of the random guy showing up. <laughs> old man, you know, that's got some information that he's got to yeah. divulge later on. That's a good point. Yeah, we do see that quite a bit. But speaking of this showing up, we're seeing a guy named Steven on a speed racer lawnmower. <laughs> who's mowing the lawn at 7 a.m. and then reveals that he has a crush on John's daughter. And, of course, this is a guy who we'll really see come to life later on this year when we get to the lawnmower man. Gentlemen, get ready. Strap yourselves in for that. But come on, Stephen the Lawnmower Man? I mean, I, I think yep. maybe that was a play on the fact that Stephen King himself was suing the makers of the Lawnmower Man for using his well, name. And so it was kind of like a dig at that. That's what I kind of took it, took it as. But I don't know. Even, seeing this. He even seems to have some mental handicap, just like in that movie. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely, uh, at minimum, he's on the spectrum. On the spectrum, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Michelle and John, they're cleaning up John's mom's house as Michelle finds pictures of him playing basketball and him hanging out with old girlfriends. He also refuses to tell her why he never really visited his mom. And this is also when we're introduced to his mom's pig. (laughs) More on this later. This is also, speaking of Michael Gross, family ties in particular, bad family ties when it comes to Stephen King characters. Yes. John then grabs a pair of binoculars and looks through them. And what a filmmaker trick we're seeing as we think it's him. But we cut to kids looking at girls, quote unquote, canoobies across the street. So he's looking at his sister's tits, right? I mean, that's the thing is he is he's looking at his sister. Like Uh I, I get I get his buddy showing up from the sandlot to show up over here and look at whoever he could look at. But dude's looking at his sister. We're playing incest here. Yeah, uh, I'm sure the Game of Thrones writers weren't cast this. <laughs> <laughs> Alexis Arquette, fresh from Pulp Fiction, here playing Tony Reno, then shows up and gives the girl flowers. And oh, it's Reno. In return. Yeah. I kept Sorry. hearing Romo. Sorry, I got, two, I got two pages of notes that say Tony Romo. <laughs> Me too. Tony Ro- Do you really? <laughs> yeah, that's how I read it, too. Yep. And I, I had the subtitles on. So it listed his full name and said Tony Reno. But I'm not going to lie, I was having some mudslides watching this movie. (laughs) It started to get a little slanted. My version did not even have subtitles, which I took as the conversion company just didn't even want to bother putting those in. Yeah, mine didn't either. So at this point, we're seeing the first film being played out. But it's safe to say that this time it's in a lesser way. Right, guys? I don't know. Okay, so you're still on the fence about this. Yeah, I will say, I think that some of the people here are doing as good of a job as what we had before. I'm going to get a, a positive note. And yes, this is as superficial and misogynistic as you get. But if you're going to do a direct-to-DVD type movie, putting in blood and boobs is a good way to go. And I don't mean that to sound as bad as it does, but it's more engaging than last week because of that. Yeah, this one definitely doesn't feel as sanitized as the first one did in certain capacities, except for the moments where they dismembered somebody and threw them out of a car. Uh, There's stuff (laughs) in this movie that brought me back to the heyday of when you would go to see like a grindhouse type of movie. And it's just reprehensible shit that no studio would back or endorse. We cut to night as Michelle is going through pictures and finds articles on the disappearance of a girl that we just saw flashbacks of. She hears a noise, 
goes out and explores and finds the kitchen's been messed up by the pig. We then see the two girls from earlier. They come and invite Michelle over to the diner, and they drop lines about her birthday. And then when they go to the kitchen, they see that the kitchen is actually very clean. And man, is Swink having a hard time exclaiming this. Oh, someone, you know, speaking of Stephen King, someone else was doing lines in this, uh, <laughs> in this product, dropping lines during this production. You mean that right away Hillary Swank has got the shine? Well, that I was going to get to that. So one of these girls has the shine, correct? I mean, they don't really yeah. play with this. She has, she loves tarot cards, but does she have the shine? Uh, it's weird. I mean, she, she, she's got visions. She's seen stuff, but Hillary Swank is seeing stuff. It's not clear who can see what and why, but it, it's that way when the demons start showing up because they're not always seen. It's for all the flesh that they press in this movie. Some of that stuff's just not fleshed out anyway at all. No, I'm waiting for the Cenobites to show up at any minute and say, we have such sights to show you. It's called good screenwriting. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, the rules in this are just as unclear and murky as the first one, where they, mm. they still operate under certain, like, vampire principles. But I do appreciate this one. They're, they're at least much more demonic. Oh, yeah. It definitely makes them feel yeah, well, more, more threatening than a bunch of 50s greasers. Yeah, well, we're, we're definitely going to get there. So they're drinking milkshakes and looking at tarot cards as the jukebox is clicked on. And they are then visited by Tony Reno from earlier, who expresses his condolences for Michelle's grandma. Michelle and one of the girls is into Tony's act, as the other one is just kind of completely turned off here. He gives her the watch that's around his neck. And instead of doing that thing, Tony takes his cue and leaves. Steven, the lawnmower man, he comes to the diner just in time to see Tony leave and then disappear as he walks away. So Steven looks around, sees him walking, and then all of a sudden disappear. So setting up a little bit of something here. We then cut to the recycling center as John Porter grabs some boxes and has another flashback to him and his friend finding a black car and then being visited by Tony, who tells them to get lost as the girl from earlier tells him that she's going to be okay. And of course, this girl ends up being his sister. So more flashbacks here. Boys, are we uh, intrigued by these flashbacks? Adam, you seem to be. A little bit. I at least want to know what's going on. I enjoyed the first one. It's uh, enjoy, quote unquote, because there's took the areola out of the room. But I, I, yeah, there's a lot of flashbacks in this, though. The non-sequential type storytelling in this one is not doing it favors the further along it goes, because each of these are so incomplete that by the end of the movie, there's way too many fucking flashbacks. I find, speaking of the swine, it's like putting lipstick on a pig, where it's like, I appreciate what you're trying to do. You're not impressing anybody. Know your place. You're a direct-to-video sequel to the D-tier of Stephen King properties. John Porter is once again visited by the guy from earlier who said he came to him 30 years earlier for help, and he could help him again if he just asks. We cut to Tony showing up and giving Michelle flowers as the pig and John Porter come in and interrupt. And this causes John to get defensive as Tony sees himself to the door. So he recognizes him, obviously. Mm-hmm. John Porter then tells Michelle that he doesn't like that Tony guy as he looks like somebody he used to know. We then see John awakened and walking through the house as he walks into his daughter's bedroom. <laughs> she's not only fully made up, she's having sex with Tony and some snakes. This I'm talking about Hellraiser. I mean, this was Hellraiser. This was some kind of weird Argento-esque kind of imagery going on here. Anti-porn. Yeah. What, what the fuck is going on here? Uh, when did Jim Jarmusch take over this production? That's my, <laughs> my question. <laughs> she's like looking back at the camera and she's all fully made up. And it was just a weirdly crazy scene. And this decided to go full like live action, Yorado Sudoku, freaking hentai. That's a choice. And that choice doesn't leave the rest of this movie, which I, wow. 
I mean, the the thing is though, it's kind of in for this type of time period. But whew, that's a that, that's a choice. It would have been something to expand on this a little bit. I don't know. Like you take this kind of kind of imagery and you do something with this. This relationship between Michelle and Tony goes nowhere. Like there is nothing between these two at all. I'm not talking about the actors. I'm talking about the characters here. There's a little bit of an attraction at first and it goes away really quick. Like you could have done something where she was at least, I don't know if possessed is the right word, at least intrigued by this guy more than just having a milkshake with him. Yeah. Well, they basically took this from the Cape Fear remake where mm-hmm. De Niro's hitting on Juliette Lewis. He picks her up at a bar and stuff, and she's clearly a, a teenage daughter, but they make it a point that she's rebellious and is mm-hmm. purposefully doing that to get back at her father. So I kind of wish they took a similar angle here or just flat out said he hexed her or something, because let's be honest, the rules of powers you have when you make a deal with the devil are basically infinite with the possibilities you could have. Yeah, and to me, like, I don't think that this is her story as much as it's these demons and porters, you know, the dad. And to me, anytime that she's with these people, it, it's just to get at him. It's just to get at the dad. But I feel like this gang, these characters, are demonic in a way that the first one didn't give us until too little too late. You kind of know right off the bat that we're actually dealing with some demons here at this point. We cut to Michelle being visited by Speed Racer Steve as she grabs the mail and he tells her that he doesn't get into other people's affairs because they're none of his business. But that Tony Reno, he's not like other people. John sees Tony's car drive past him, which makes him flashback yet again. Just take a shot every time that happens and you'll be dead by the end of this fucking movie. Flashback to him walking into a high voltage area right into a cult being led by Tony who kills John's sister and then takes the compass off of her. So we know where that came from. And then they are electrocuted. And, well, we will be covering the Pirates of the Caribbean series next. And my guess is we'll be seeing better effects in that series. <laughs> A shocker direct to VHS sequel yes. has better looking effects than this right here. I thought of Wes Craven's shocker a lot. <laughs> this is... Should matter emotional beat of him watching his sister get killed is missing completely. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's, you know, you're dealing with kid actors, you're getting, but nothing in here gives you this tortured emotional beat of watching his sister get killed. And it almost feels like reshoot insert shots that are done so piss poor when we get here. Well, it's the inverse of the first one where I think the actual, like, death of the brother actually has some bearing. And some effectiveness. Here, it feels like, to your point, this was something they added in post because they forgot to explain what happened in the past. Yeah. (laughs) We get back to John as he's still in traffic getting yelled at by a drive-by Karen. And we're (laughs) seeing him in the house picking up a book. And Matt, did you catch which book this is? No, but humor me. When he picks up the journal, it is covering none other than the drawing of the three, which is the third Dark Tower book. Dark Tower. Uh, if I actually knew a lot about the Dark Tower, that would uh, <laughs> tickle my fancy, but I've I've only read the first book. All right, we'll be getting to that movie pretty quick. Yeah, I'll be dead by that point. <laughs> <laughs> John's reading the journal, finds a passage about an old watch, and then the electricity goes out, and as they set the breaker, it just fumes a bit before going fully out. Speed Racer Steve, he shows back up out of nowhere and brings some gloves to protect Porter from electric volts. Hmm, I wonder if this will come up again. 
Boy, I wonder if Chekhov's fuse box and rubber gloves will matter. (laughs) Porter then goes to church and finds the guy from earlier who tells him that the only way to keep the spirit away is to bleed on the religious symbols. Now, Matt, this would seem to be going more for that vibe from that original story where the main character uses a book of spells to conjure up a demon. And we're going to see someone's thumb get cut off, just like in that story. Do you think they were going more for the spirit of that story? Both in spirit and in tone, I would say. This one's got a little bit more of a mean streak than the first one does. So I, I appreciate their approach where they're they're going back to the source material and taking it in a more in a further direction that they could because they weren't bound by the quote-unquote burdens of TV censorship like the first one was. So I, I, li- I like this approach. Do I like the movie as a whole overall more? Well, that remains to be seen. But as far as what they're establishing, there, there's nothing here that I outright reject. I'll go ahead and say, given that from this point on, I mean, let's face it, the movie's bonkers from the beginning, but we go way bonkers from this point on. And I have to say, I have a pretty good time with the rest of this movie from here on out for what it is. Porter is then told that he can't run away from the evil that's following him and he must cut it off from where it all started. We're then reminded. Now this was, this was something I did not see coming. This is crazy. We're then reminded of Jim Norman who violated the Sabbath and that Porter should maybe call on his help. So we're seeing a little bit of connective tissue from film to film. Hey guys, I was not expecting this at all. Mm-mm. Did they go to a hospital and get, like, kidney transplant? Because that's kind of what this equivalent was. Like, they threw a Hail Mary up and pulled this out of their ass. <laughs> <laughs> we then cut to Steve, the lawnmower guy, who's just singing the happiest of songs while working until the lawnmower hits a shoe and his hat flies off. The that's lawn a then red comes- shoe. Yeah, Sorry. good point. You're talking about connective tissue. Suddenly Uh that red shoe from the first one. We don't explain or anything else, but if you've seen that first one, there's your nod. Ah, Good point. I didn't catch that. The lawn then comes to life, and he's sucked under with the lawnmower running him over. (laughs) And Tony's at the forefront and giving the line, looks to be a bad hair day, and asking for a hand. This is great 80 slasher stuff here, and I I gotta say, I love it. This one I can't stand, because it becomes a different movie from this point on. They turned him into discount Freddy Krueger. That's exactly what it is. But you know what? We didn't have Freddy from 91 on. And I'm kind <laughs> of or actually we had him in New Nightmare, but that doesn't count. Um, <laughs> but I'm liking hey. it here. <laughs> I am liking this slasher villain type. Now, don't get me wrong. This isn't a good movie by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not saying that trying to say that this is a great movie. But what I'm saying is I'm having more fun with this than I was last week. I'm confused on why the rules suddenly changed that. This demon can get him sucked into the grass and it, and how that part is going on. I swear the director's just got something about tentacles and, and shit because that's what the grass even looks like. It's as soon as and it's the marquee, either on the church or the theater. I can't remember. It says bad hair day. And I know that that's going to be used here in a minute. And it sure does. I'm just, I'm confused. Like the rules are suddenly changing partway through and I don't like that, but the escalation of violence and shit i do think is fun even that alexis arquette has got these weird little like serpent contacts in the entire time yeah yeah you know that if you look at the eyes it's a little creepy like there's it's schlock but it's schlock that i'm as much as i don't think it's clean when it revels in it i don't hate it this part specifically though i'm like okay you just completely changed the rules of everything that had come on beforehand but as soon as i see that lawnmower 
And it's funny because I almost think that somebody's given a middle finger to Stephen King and Maximum Overdrive because oh, yeah. they zoom in, they zoom in on the blades going. There's no doubt what's going to happen. And when it does, I'm like, okay, we're completely pivoting. But I can't believe that I'm not standing there with my arms crossed at this point. I'm just kind of reveling in its fun. That's because you were sitting down watching this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Quite true. We cut to Tony performing a ritual, which consists of bleeding the lawnmower guy's dismembered parts into a sacrificial pool. As another awakening happens, this of a demon who turns into his friends, Vinny and Sean. So he reawakens his friends here. I like seeing them come back this way. You know, something that we didn't get. We didn't get in the first one. We didn't see them come back. We just, they came back. So seeing them emerge, I can't believe, I guess I'm outing myself a little bit. Like I have seen this hentai right here where you get this demon emerge from this pool of blood. So it's, it's crazy how, how this is with the tail and, and everything else. Like I expected that cod piece to flop open at a moment when it was emerging. Yeah. But I do think seeing that there's this methodology to bring them back. Okay, you're bringing me at least something a little different here. I cannot believe of the two of you, Adam, you're the one going with this more than Matt is. Oh, I'm having a good time, but I I don't think there's a lot of I can't advocate this for being a great movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to take it on its level. But I'm immensely Mm -hmm. more entertained than I was in the first movie. Porter uses a rotary phone and finds Jim Norman's house. (laughs) but is told by who we think is his wife that he died this morning when he bled to death. But this person on the other end is revealed to be Tony, along with his friends. So the the funny thing about this is, okay, so we saw Jim Norman, a.k.a. Tim Matheson, last week. He went through a lot. He brought his brother back from the other side. He did so much to get rid of those demons last week. And here we're just told, oh, yeah, he's done. He's bled to death, and that's the end of him. What a weird way to off this. Like, this is fucking Alien 3 flashbacks for me. This is like Newt and Hicks getting offed in the beginning of that movie. It's like, this guy fought mm-hmm. through so much to do this, and now he's just off in a poof of light. Nobody even has any fanfare for it. <sighs> Porter's car won't start, and he's terrorized by Tony and his friends, but this just ends up being a figment of his imagination as his car starts. Or is it? <laughs> I love when Adam was in the middle of a plot. I was waiting for it to blow up. Yeah. yeah I thought it was going to blow up. I, I, yeah. <laughs> we then cut to Michelle's 18th birthday. As the two girls from earlier, they give a birthday tarot, not tarot, guys. They okay, flip I'm the glad cards. it wasn't just me that bugged. Every time they're saying tarot. <laughs> they flip the cards as Porter comes home and is asking, who lit the fire that won't stay dead? Just as the dreaded death card is flipped, and they find the poor pig from earlier dead and sacrificed. Oh boy, this poor pig. They need to get it at Pet cemetery. <laughs> yeah. They just had to drive across the border. The gum-chewing sheriff comes by and isn't too big on finding the killer of a pig as Porter asked to find a connection between this and his mother's death. Is Stephen King a vegetarian? I only ask because he's got a thing for murdering pigs between this and Carrie. <laughs> Goudreau, how many times do I have to tell you? He had nothing to do with this. This is people taking from Carrie. I took it as a nod to him. Okay. Porter is getting deeper into the book given to him, more tellingly the part where he needs a digit severed to help with the ritual needed to get rid of the evil. Again, definite callback to the story. Meanwhile, the girls are once again visited by Tony at the diner as one of them puts on his jacket and something is seen crawling back into his neck. 
Kudrow, <laughs> what was that for? Was it the bad effect, or was it the fact that there was something crawling back in? Just anything with bugs, that stuff always just irks me, regardless of how good or bad the effect is. The other girl is in the bathroom as Tony emerges and warns her to stay away. But when she does emerge from the bathroom, she learns that Tony actually left the diner with Michelle. So how could he have been in two places at once, guys? Hmm. Dun, dun, dun. The sheriff tells Porter that the blood from the scene was actually his mother's blood, which is weird because the blood is fresh. And then Porter visits a train tunnel, and as he walks through, he finds Tony, who tells him that he did kill his sister and that he's been taking good care of his family over the years. His wife, his dad, his mom, all his doing as payback is a bitch, is what he says. Yeah, speaking of Nightmare on Elm Street, they throw that word out a lot. Yes, they do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, thought, I thought of Freddy a lot during these scenes. This just did not, that everything that has happened to Grossman's character is all because of Tony. Just, I don't know, that same, like a why, why, like it just didn't, didn't fit, didn't flow. And then is he been in a live demon killing everybody randomly throughout the years? Then why didn't his gang start coming back before this I, I don't know. We don't even learn how the wife, mother died and the grandmother. They do enough to make me think that the two girls might have had something to do with it. I'm at least intrigued by that. But yeah. that everything is Tony doesn't really make sense because is he is he waiting for someone to die to come back? You know, we believe that the grandmother died. That's how he's coming back. But apparently not. So it's contradicting itself while it's giving the explanation. Agreed. I, I, I'm looking, you know, I'm looking for explanation and, you know, schlocky directed video horror, but you're the one that's giving me an explanation. <laughs> yes, that's my job. Maria comes by and says that she found Steve's lawnmower full of blood, as well as his bloody hat and some teeth to go with it. Tony finds Maria in the diner and he puts out a cigarette in her ice cream. She doesn't find him sexy anymore as Vinny and Tony, they pretend to have Vinny scare him away. And so Vinny is now making out with Maria. As he tells her that she has cute ears and he reveals himself to be a demon. This makeout section where they're never actually kissing. This makes me think that I am back in a high school doing a play where you're pretending <laughs> to kiss the person because they're like smushing like lips to cheek and like rubbing on chin. At no point do they ever kiss. And that you've got cute ears is the type of stupid 16, 17 year old shit that I would have pulled out of my ass to try to say to somebody. But <laughs> I'm going to say boobs and if one thing this movie benefits from it is being fully r-rated yeah i, I agree with that I, this isn't something just added for a video release here like last week's movie last week's movie had as matt mentioned the huge limbs throwing out of the window scene and this random scenes of violence that you know livened it up for people who are gore hounds but here like this is just hardcore r like we have tits we have a lot of blood this is the kind of stuff that quite frankly as somebody who we say it all the time that 90s wasn't exactly the best time for horror early to mid 90s. But this is the kind of stuff where it, when it was on video and I did work at a video store around this time. Adam, you remember this? Uh, this is the stuff I would take home and Adam, you and I would probably sit down and have a couple beers or whatever and watch stuff like this, which we probably did. Not this movie, right. but a lot oh, of similar. things like that yep. shelf. Porter and Michelle, they reveal that they both didn't sleep very well last night as a package shows up from Vinny, Tony and Sean. Michelle opens it to reveal Maria's ears. 
Uh, not exactly blue velvet, is it, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think people were people were inhaling gas when they uh, they were writing this movie. <laughs> they had to father Archer. Adam, did you get a big kick out of them dropping Archer name here? <laughs> <laughs> they had to father Archer, who tells them, "Yep, they're not human." Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Yeah, this guy I've seen in. Like, oh yeah, so much fucking Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I thought of with this guy? We thought of Freddy with Alexis Arquette's character, but I thought of Loomis with this guy. Like the way he kind of just kind of repeats things and is shouting very every once so. in a while. Yeah, his, his delivery is very Donald Pleasance Loomis. Yeah. Jules tries going to Maria's house and is visited by who she thinks is the sheriff and the police, but it's actually Tony, Sean, and Vinny in disguise. And that box doesn't contain donuts, guys. Now we can shapeshift and look like a... Yeah. Yeah, the <laughs> shape-shifting shit, when you establish rules, you cannot break them this blatantly, honestly. And, mm-hmm. yeah, this is this is really stupid shit. I, even I'm going to rebel against this. We go from this worst scene of the movie to the best scene of the movie. What? We get what I feel is one of the <laughs> best horror deaths I have seen in a long time. Death by tarot cards. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> At the time I was taking notes for this movie, Jen was out with some friends. They were out having sushi. And I text her this scene, and I'm like, look what I'm watching. <laughs> I got the worst response. This was fucking great to me. I don't know, man. There's something about this creative slasher deaths, and this is the kind of stuff, like, he takes the cards, and they spin in the air, and then they go flying at her. And what's weird is, like, she holds her hand up, and we've established that this chick might have the shine, she might be a little bit of carry. So when she holds her hand up, I'm thinking, oh, we're gonna see a little bit of a duel here. Nope, it just goes straight through her fucking hand. <laughs> oh, you thought she was gonna, like, have telekinesis and stop the card in midair? Yes! I don't think they had the budget to do that. Well, they have I don't think they spin. have the budget for the... They don't have the budget for this scene. <laughs> yeah, this it's looks like it's shot God. in my backyard. <laughs> this dam is a weird... Like, I don't know how suddenly we're... It's the size of the Hoover Dam across, but it's this little freaking creeks-sized pathway that they're on up top. And, oh my God, this is when I wanted to throw my remote at the TV was this scene. <laughs> <laughs> because, one... It could have been a clear day at sea because I can see everything that's coming from 50 nautical miles away. And on top of it, these tarot cards, which are normal sized tarot cards, until they need to be thrown. And then Gambit from the X-Men would be impressed with the force and depth that these tarot cards suddenly grow (laughs) to like five times their size and embed in her like it's a Bond villain freaking like odd job throwing a hat it looks like the worst of freddy's nightmares i can't believe how bad this looks and it doesn't happen once they keep doing it over and over and over until she is just covered in these things because apparently it took the entire freaking deck for her to bleed out yeah oh. yeah how many cards are in the tarot deck <laughs> 52, apparently, because that's how many you're in her. It's more like it's literally the death of a thousand cuts, because I think that's how many cards it took for her to bleed out. (laughs) Oh, so great. Meanwhile, Michelle and John, they go home to get the watch, and Father Archer is the one who has to cut off his finger. 
At least that's what we're told. But he's interrupted by the gang who arrive and kill him. Meanwhile, Michelle and John, they show back up. And Michelle, for some reason, just can't bring herself to go back down there. Porter. <laughs> what? Sorry. You go all the way that, you know, you're this, the murder, the death, everything else. You're getting ready to go. And you're like, nope, I can't go down. That's too much. <laughs> <laughs> Porter finds Archer dead as the gang finds Michelle. They're planning a sacrifice as Porter grabs Archer's knife and leaves the church. A race against time happens as Porter shoots Tony, who, along with his friends, take demon form. At this point, Tony is full on Freddy because he even approaches her and calls her a bitch again in his demon amplified voice, as you already pointed out, mm-hmm. Matt. But Porter lures the group in and, and using these gloves that we introduced in the second act here, he uh, lures them in. And he electrifies them, giving them a terrible effect yet again before cutting off his finger, performing the sacrifice, and sending them to hell. Are you really going to walk into? They didn't make this, like, water flow to them. Homeboys walked into the exact same pool with the blood again to get electrocuted the same way all over again. Sometimes you do the same stupid shit and deserve to die. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Goudreau, what are you feeling at this point? I was feeling the booze by the time the, uh, we get into this, because I thought I was, I was hallucinating shit with the, the, apparently there's no karma school in hell, because they do the same, you die by the same way twice, which just cracks me up. This movie is so dumb that it goes all the way back into being smart. It's just, it's one of those things that I, I, I was sitting there going, I'm so happy to be here, but I'm not happy that I had to watch the first one to get to this. (laughs) (laughs) He gets told goodbye by his sister as they leave. We then, (laughs) as you said, Adam, we're bookending with shrink sessions here. And coming off of just watching The Sopranos all the way through, I'm like, damn, another shrink session. (laughs) But we cut (laughs) to another session with the guy from the beginning as Porter once again has visions of Tony and tells the guy that everything is fine. As credits roll on Sometimes They Come Back Again. All right, boys. Scale of 1 to 10. What do we give Sometimes They Come Back Again? Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. I can't believe for a franchise that I was dead set against having to do from a book series I haven't read from direct to VHS movie that was a sequel to a made-for-TV movie. My expectations were subterranean. They were down there with the freaking tremor worms that Michael Gross knows so well. (laughs) And this is just schlocky fun in ways that I can't believe I enjoyed. Michael Gross is as deadpan as it gets, and it's fine because he sets a standard. But Alexis Arquette is delightful as Tony, devilish enough in a way that we didn't get in that first one. Uh, Hilary Swank, I enjoy. I think she does a good job but it's really everybody else's movie around that has some fun it knows what kind of movie it is for the most part but just gallons of caro syrup blood boobs tails allusions to hentai porn and it's kind of crazy that this movie can bring the enjoyment and fun that i was missing last week which i enjoyed enough but this one I think having it be R-rated and kind of not having a governor on that car 
allows it to put its pedal down and just be stupid fun in that way. And I can't believe I enjoyed myself so much more than I thought I was going to. Is it a good movie? Fuck no, it's not. It's a Stephen King's directed video sequel to a TV movie. But what it is, is stupid horror, late 90s, mid 90s fun in in that kind of way. If HBO Max was to put together, you know, like a series of these on their service that could be R-rated horror fun, I think it would be a win. But this one, amazing being that it's, what, 25 years old, 26, 27 years old at this point, that I did not have a bad time blows me away so as well as it's not good it's not crappy it's better than last week and i enjoyed myself with sometimes they come back again i'm gonna give it a five it it was a good enough watch and put some drinks in me and some buddies and i would watch it again wow five out of ten from mr bunch goudreau you were the one drinking while watching it well what was your score well, before I get to my score, I should say that this was not the movie I expected because it was less of a sequel and more of a, I guess you could call it a readaptation of the original story. And, and in some ways, I think this is actually better than the first movie. For one thing, I like the tone a lot more. There's none of that sappy shit that I resisted so heavily in the climax of the first one. And treating them more as demons versus ghosts was something that I thought made the gang a little bit more imposing. But having said that, much like the first one, you have the main leader, essentially, and then everyone else. As a gang, much like the first film, they don't really abide by the strength, lies, and numbers conceit. And I do think they're offset by some really bad one-liners and just even stuff that Freddy would say, bitch, don't send that my way. And I think that's probably what he would have said, especially around this time. And I also recognize one of the gang as from Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. How's that for a 90s throwback? (laughs) Wow. That's hard to get that image out of your head. And oh my god, the priest is basically Dr. Loomis from Halloween 4 on, where he is just gone off the deep end and will preach to anyone who listens to him. And yeah, the lawnmower character couldn't have got off my screen fast enough. But for what this is, and I have to put that statement in bold text, I enjoyed myself immensely. I think this is the kind of movie that helps when you have a drink in you or two. But you also have to go in knowing what this is. This is not high art. I don't even think it's low art. I think I think this is this is like when your kid gives you a macaroni drawing and you have no choice but to hang it on the refrigerator regardless of how it looks. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's Stephen King. It's a sequel to something that was not great to begin with. It is what it is. You know, I'll I'll sit there and admire it, but it's probably going into the trash a couple of days later once I get something better. So I'm gonna give it the same score I gave the first one. I, I'm at a six on ten for this. <laughs> That's right. That's what we gave the first one. Shit. Yeah. Sorry, I fucked up my score. My bad. All right. So you're you're giving me a six as well. I am giving it a six. I'm like I enjoyed it more. Yeah, I can't score it less than the first one. I enjoyed it more, but I can't okay. give it a seven. So yeah, I'm easily a six. Wow. Goudreau, after lambasting this film for as long as you have, and you're still giving it a six. That's kind of crazy. But a movie like this really makes me want to reassess our scoring system because what's about to come out of my mouth may scare some people. I scoured the internet looking for quotes from King if he had any response to this whatsoever. And he didn't. I mean, I'm sure if this had come out in the Twitter universe, he would have tweeted about it or something. But I have no idea how he feels about this movie. But if you were to watch this and see what they did with the essence of his story, which is the way the rituals and things are done in this movie, I'm pretty sure he would probably say he had a pretty decent time with it. 
And, uh, or at least he did back then when he was less sentimental. And I'm going to go ahead and say I did have a pretty good time with this movie. It has that spirit, but it has a meanness to it. It also has some really abstract images going on. And yeah, there's some engaging things going on. Now, again, I got to reiterate. I don't think this is a good movie at all. I don't think this is a movie that I'm going to hold as something that you must rush to go see. But I'm going to go ahead and say, you know, this is one of those things that if you're into schlock horror and there are people out there who really are, there are people on my Facebook timeline, the schlocky shit they put, they watch. I'm like, what the fuck? And this is something that is right up their alley. I think this is something that if you put this on and you are not fully aware of the sometimes they come back story. You could just kind of sit and watch this. You would probably have a decent enough time with it. And I had a decent time with this. I had just as decent a time as I did last week. Guess what? Once again, we have three sixes. Six out of ten for me as well. I uh, I enjoyed this flick for what it is. You got to take it for what it is. If you're coming in, and Matt said it perfectly, you don't come in expecting high art, but come in expecting a schlocky good time, and you might have a pretty decent time with this. But will we have a good time with next week's movie? Sometimes they come back for more. Jesus, God, that's a terrible title. (laughs) Oh, you think it's a bad title? Check out the uh, cover. The, The cover of it is even better. Sometimes they come back for more. Now, as somebody who has gone through enough snow issues this winter, <laughs> this is something I'm dreading going to. Matt, what are you expecting with next week's Sometimes They Come Back for More? So I did some digging on this movie because I, I wanted to see what it'd be like if I knew what to expect. So I looked at the poster and apparently it's like John Carpenter's The Thing where they're at this Arctic base or research facility, what have you. And it's just this demonic hand at the tagline is hell is finally frozen over. Yep. And I swear to God, that's the same tagline that Jack Frost 2 used. <laughs> um, <laughs> or at least, at least one of those did. Um, it's the same they, era. Yeah, so same era. And honestly, it's probably the same budget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is to say not very much. But I love that we, for a movie about demons, we have 666 as our scores. I think that's hysterical. I hope I have a good time with next week's movie. And if it's bad, I want it to be like so inconceivably awful that I can't stop laughing at it. Adam, what about you, sir? How much are you dreading next week's film? I've got a bad feeling about this one. <laughs> 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 you know, I went into this one with some pretty bad expectations and, and ended up being pleasantly surprised. I, I don't know why, because you would think maybe I would expect something on par for this one. I don't. I got a really bad feeling, but we'll see. The only thing I've seen is the poster. I had to hunt around for the trailer. So by the time I finally found it after hunting for it, I went, you know what? No, I'm not going to watch it. I'm going to go in as virginally as I could go. But that poster alone, that they're ripping off of that, kind of hoping that, ooh, did you like the thing? Come see this piece of shit. <laughs> that the feeling that I got. Um, so we'll see. I'm hoping I could survive the whatever it is, 90, 95 minutes to get through this one without freaking willing myself to <laughs> freaking cut myself open and invite the host in. And yes, we have spent the first month of the year going through King's Night Shift. We're going to give Adam a break. Tune in next week because we will reveal the big series we'll be doing after this one's done. But until then, you always wanted to be like your brother, didn't you, Jimmy? You always wanted to podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Okay, guys, let's sit down. Chip, take a seat. What's that, an order? No, it's a suggestion. You can take a seat or you can go talk to Coach about it. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Sometimes the hardest part is admitting to yourself that something exists which makes you frightened. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Real glad to be here, sir. And if you'd like to hear the boys talk about the film adaptations of Carrie and The Shining, please head over to bingemedia.net and click the Aftertaste tab. Don't you know? Your buddies are back. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. You want to give that to me? Oh, I'd love to give it to you. The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Now on, we all stay together. Edited by Garrett. Mind giving me a hand? Voiceovers by Adam. But you gotta live with me and I gotta live with you, so let's try and enjoy it, okay? The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Come on, Mr. Norman. We're going to break for dinner. We'll get back at it later. Less to intrigue me and more to kind of frustrate me at the very beginning here. What about you guys? Adam, you first. Oh, Oh, go ahead, Matt. Matt, go ahead. Is Stephen King a vegetarian? I only ask because he's got a thing for murdering pigs between this and Carrie. Goudreau, how many times do I have to tell you? He had nothing to do with this. This is people taking from Carrie. I took it as a nod to him. Okay. Are you going to say something, Adam? Nope. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. So much fun in Star Trek. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know what I thought of with this guy? We thought of Freddy with Alexis Arquette's character, but I thought of fucking... um, God damn it. Donald Pleasance's character in Halloween. Fuck. Loomis? Yes, Loomis. I thought of I thought of Loomis.